Hi everyone, it's Guillaume from Startup Basecamp. Welcome to the Tech for Climate podcast. During the show, you will have the opportunity to meet the best climate tech founders, investors, and experts from both Silicon Valley and around the globe. They will share with you their stories and personal journeys into this growing and exciting industry, giving you some insight into the ecosystems that help you to take part in the fight against climate change and benefit from the opportunities it can represent podcast is divided in two small interviews. During the first part, you will get to know our speakers, their perspectives on the climate crisis and how climate tech is changing the game. Second part of the discussion will be for members of our community who will learn the speaker's secret sauce on how to and share with you their unique expertise on topics such as fundraising, management, strategy and so on to help you to become a better leader in your field. So before we start, I would like to quickly share what we are doing at Startup Basecamp to support climate tech founders in accessing resources and gaining visibility with investors they seek. Our initiatives include a membership-based community platform offering access to a dedicated Slack group with a growing number of founders, experts, and investors from around the world and a series of exclusive content such as interviews, weekly job listings, events, and our quarterly online pitch of night opportunity. But more than a place where you can learn, exchange, and grow, we are building a matchmaking service to facilitate connections between our members and top investors and experts in the field. And soon, alongside with other top investors, we will be launching a small fund to co-invest in the growth and acceleration of our members. Finally, all of this is possible because of your support and donations. We are a small self-funded team, and we want you to be part of this collective movement against climate change. So please share one episode with a friend and subscribe to the channels. As an added bonus, we will plant a tree for each of our subscribers each time we reach 1,000 new fans or donors. Do not hesitate to connect with me via social media or email guillaume at Startup Basecamp. Thanks a lot for listening. I hope to get in touch with you soon. And now, let's go for the show. Hi, everyone. In this new episode of Founder Series, sitting down with Mihir Perchat, CEO at Umami Meat, a food tech startup based out of Singapore, which is cultivating the future of sustainable seafood crafting delicious and affordable cultivated fish meat that has a potential to be better for your health, the ocean, and the planet. I was excited to speak with Mihir to learn more about his passion for combining startups and science, which brought him to work in a venture studio helping professors starting companies. This experience exposed him to biotech applied to food and the potential it can represent for the aquaculture industry. Later on, this led him to Asia, to where he gained a deeper understanding of the farm-raised fish industry and its impact on sustainability. And eventually, after several other successful ventures, to the launch of Umami Meats. In this episode, you will discover the extraordinary potential of the sustainable culture seafood landscape today and what challenges are to scale the ecosystem. Then we go deeper into their unique solution and the process they put in place to craft these exciting alternatives to traditional fish. Finally, Mihir will share the next steps necessary to achieve their vision and how you can get involved in the process. 
to the second part of the talk, Mihir will give his secret sauce for early stage founders looking to fundraise. Finally, he will share his own work-life balance tips for busy founders and some of his must-read book for entrepreneurs. Mihir, welcome to the show. Hi Mihir, welcome to the Tech for Climate podcast. We are super happy and excited to have you here for a new episode of our founder series. Yeah, great to, great to meet and looking forward to the conversation. <laughs> Thank you. So before we start, as uh, usual, we like to ask uh, you know, a 30 second intro uh, about uh, your company. So if you can uh, give us that about uh, Umami Meats. Sure. So Umami Meats is a company based in Singapore that's cultivating the future of sustainable seafood. And we're doing that by crafting delicious, affordable and nutritious cultivated fish that can be better for our health, our oceans and our planet. So let's start from the from the top. Uh, in this show, we always like to to have uh, you know the, the founders or the investors kind of telling uh, a little bit more about uh, who they are as a human. Uh, so can you tell us a bit more about uh, your story uh, and uh, and background uh, prior uh, starting Umami Meat and uh, maybe these things that uh, you know besides being a uh, successful uh, entrepreneurs, uh, investors as well, uh, the stuff that uh, you like to do, you don't like to do on the on the side. I mean, who is me here? Yeah, absolutely. So I was born and raised in the United States. And when I went to university, studied biochemistry. So my background is technical on the biology side. And I spent several years working in a research university lab and actually fell into entrepreneurship most unexpectedly. I think I was definitely on the pre-med a medical career path and started a nonprofit with a few friends while I was in university and it grew and it grew some more. And then uh, the third year of building, it was my last year at university. And I decided I really liked the, how quickly things could move and how much impact you could create in a short period of time, uh, working in this kind of startup environment and decided that I really wanted to do that, but find a way to tie that back to science because I really wanted to, to combine those two things. And so actually, after university, went and joined a venture studio called Early Tron Ventures based in, in Baltimore, Maryland, and worked with them to help professors start companies based on their, on their patents. So it's kind of a perfect marriage of the things I was looking to do. Um, and actually was first exposed to biotech applied to food there uh, in, a, in a real way and looking at using uh, biotech solutions to produce things like vaccines or diagnostics for aquaculture. And that brought me to Asia for the helped me really get to see where the food is produced, how we were getting our fish, and think much more deeply about the sustainability of that system or lack thereof. And it, it kind of brought some, some things to mind for me about where I wanted to take my career and, and how I wanted to kind of work more on the food side. I thought it was a really high leverage space uh, for biotech. Um, and so this is like a perfect space for me because it lets me, I, I grew up in a very food intensive culture, Indian by background. And so food is a huge part of uh, who we are in our celebrations. And so I think it's, it's kind of a nice combination of taking biology, applying it to that sort of space. And, and then also uh, sort of the, the ties in, tie into the ocean to me for as well. Uh, I'm an avid diver and really enjoy having work that ties in so deeply to some of the things I enjoy in my free time as well. Um, and, and being able to go diving near Singapore and see how the reefs sometimes are degrading, sometimes are being very well protected and well managed and trying to think about how we can create a better food system that actually creates better reef systems for divers, but also for the fish that live there, uh, is something that's really interesting to me. So, 
So th thank you for sharing. And do, do you think that all of those experience and, and like this diving experience uh, uh, was really like this, this driver for you to, to jump into the uh, uh, clean food industry? Uh, did you see it more as a haha moment or you have something else that really pushed you to, in a way, move into this, what we call today also climate tech? In a way? Yeah. Well, I think I... The more that I thought about and tried to be intentional about where I want to go with my career, I think the more I've recognized the importance of working on things that are sort of existential kind of problems for humanity, right? I think these are front and center for us nowadays. And it's hard for me to justify working on something else, given how important these problems are for us to tackle in the near future. And so I think that was a major motivator in looking for the right kind of fit. But for me, food came from actually working with Early Charm and getting to see the seafood system trying to solve some of the disease problems, creating vaccines and creating diagnostics, and then sort of actually getting to see a farm and saying, well, if you're growing fish at this density and you start to learn the economics and say, well, you could reduce the density and the propensity for disease and other things would drop by a certain amount, but then the economics don't fundamentally work for the farmer. And so it's asking somebody to work against their shorter term interest for a collective longer-term interest. And I think that sort of thing is a very difficult proposition to give to somebody and ask them to uphold. Um, but in a way that's collectively sort of what we have to do with, cl with a climate kind of solutions, right? Is, is act asking people to maybe uh, change what they're doing in the short term so that we can all benefit in the long term. Um, and I, I find those kinds of solutions where we can minimize the pain people feel in making those changes to be the most impactful. Uh, and the food system feel, feels like a really big one to me because changing the way people eat, it's so culturally ingrained for many of us, that's actually a really hard behavioral change to enable. Um, and so I, I, it's, it felt right when I started thinking about solving problems in this space, kind of trying to tackle a really significant problem in a way that would help people maybe change behavior in a way that wasn't painful, right? That would, that would enable them to actually eat fish the way they want to eat fish, but not having to completely sacrifice it just so that we could uh, continue to have a livable planet. So. So let's zoom out a little bit and, uh, in terms of the, the market approach. Uh, can you give us like an overview uh, or your overview on the seafood alternative protein uh, landscape today? Uh, how, how is it evolving? Uh, what is blocking or maybe slowing it down? Uh, and in a way, what needs to happen to deploy uh, this uh, seafood, cultivated seafood uh, at scale uh, and have it you know, at full capacity in a way to contribute and, and support this uh, all, uh, you know, global effort that we have uh, to reach a 2050 uh, zero goal. Uh, is it the technology that is not ready yet? Maybe is the financing, is the policies? Uh, give us a little bit of uh, your overview on that. Yeah, well, I'll say, I, I don't think you could point to any one thing and say, this is holding us back because as soon as you remove that barrier, there would be another one that would need to be overcome. It's definitely a systems level change we're aiming for. And that means it's, it's a relatively complex uh, problem to tackle. But in general today, I would say seafood is just less advanced in a less advanced state than the cell-based meats and alternatives for meats, right? I mean, you see Beyond Burgers and Impossible Burgers in the markets today, and you can buy them at the grocery store. Um, and there's a much smaller selection of smaller brands that currently exist when you talk about seafood for even plant-based. And the same thing is true if you look at sort of cultivated as well. There's many more companies, probably four or five to one, in terms of the number of companies working on beef and poultry uh, versus the number working on, on fish or any kind of seafood. And I think 
that some of that comes from where these companies are founded. There's many more companies coming out of uh, the US and Europe and relative to Asia, they the consume less seafood on average. So I think the dominance of seafood consumption in Asia means we should have more seafood companies, I think, in this space, more alternatives. Um, but just where the companies have been and where these markets have started growing first, I think lends itself more to a land-based uh, leadership. But in terms of where we can go from here and how it's going to actually scale, the biggest challenges I think are, one, the technology definitely needs to mature and needs to be adapted. We have a lot of good foundational work that's been done, especially around cell therapies the last decade. But now we have to figure out how to adapt those to food grade systems and to much larger scales, right? You think about the amount of cells you put into a person for a therapy versus how much you consume on a weekly basis. It's an order of magnitude or more that we need to produce from these systems. And I think with seafood in particular, there are some fundamental questions that are harder to answer because there's less work that's been done. So we have to go back to the to, to sort of square one when it comes to things like what kind of media can even grow these cells? What temperature should you grow them at? Uh, there's a lot of these kinds of questions we have to start where, where those assumptions are very well understood for mammalian cells. Um, and I think we're getting there now. There's enough companies working in this space. I think many of those will be solved. And then come the scale up questions, which are, as you mentioned, finance questions, but also policy questions. Right now, Singapore is the only country in the world where you can sell a cultivated product. And even then the regulatory path is still quite challenging, right? It's, it's a novel food. And so you have some significant degree of scrutiny and rigor in that process. So I think my hope is, and what we're seeing, it appears, is that these things will move in parallel and that as companies move to pilot, more countries will bring the regulatory frameworks forward and publish them. And then we'll see companies get approval in big markets that will need justify the need for a large facility. And we'll see these things move in tandem. Um, but I think that is, that is some of the complexity of the challenge. Do, do you see any like parallel between, uh, you know, like the, the meat grown lab uh, in terms of like all of those uh, approval and certification that they had to go through uh, in, in a way, uh, having the regulator accepting uh, this kind of product to, to the market and the seafood, or is it like two different, uh, two different landscapes? I think a lot of it will be highly similar. There are some material differences that are relevant to a regulator when it comes to the biology of a fish cell versus a poultry cell, for example, but not so much so that they should throw the framework out the window and start from scratch. I think it's, it's mostly going to be very similar because at the end of the day, what they care about is human safety and demonstrating that you understand your system well enough to know that you're not introducing new harm, potential risks to consumers. And Fundamentally, that's quite similar for many different types of food, especially the ones that are produced in these similar reactor systems. So do you think on the consumer side, uh, is the consumer ready uh, for this kind of like uh, alternative uh, food in itself? Or uh, you feel that we're more safe with a, a real fish than a, than a culture, uh, you know, fish uh, based? So there's been some work done on this, but I would say more definitely needs to be done to understand exactly how consumers are thinking. But the initial results are quite promising. I think we see upwards of 80 to 85% of consumers in some key markets across Asia in particular are open and interested in trying a cultivated fish product for the first time. Now, whether they will then 
eat it two, two or more times and continue buying it, that's the real critical point, right? Because uh, if people try it once and don't want to eat it again, that doesn't really help us address the problem long-term. So I think for us, it's about proving the numbers with, with real test cases, right? And actually getting product to consumers so that they can evaluate it and, and tell us, is it up to par? Does it need work? Um, you know, is, is it good enough that they would buy it over other things on the shelf? To me, that's the gold standard, right? If we can put it on the shelf next to a traditionally wild caught or farmed fish and somebody would pick it up on a blind taste and they would eat it, uh, I think that's how we know we've, we've succeeded, right? That's fantastic. So let's go, uh, let, let, let's go a bit deeper into uh, who I meet uh, now. Can you tell us a bit more like the, the, the story uh, behind it? Uh, how long did it take you guys to, and your team to put together the, the first uh, prototype? And in a way, how, how close are you uh, to, the, the, to the real fish uh, you know, flavor, textures, uh, smell, maybe? Uh, <laughs> that's also important on the important part of the of the fish side. Um, and, and maybe you can also cover like which kind of species uh, are you targeting, uh, you know, at first and, and why them? Um, yeah. So that's a bit more. Sure. So the, the way that umami meat started, I think, really was born out of some of my experience working in the aquaculture sector and, and trying to enable sustainable fish farming using biotech. And I think once I saw some of the the real economic challenges that we, we talked about and trying to think about whether it was realistic to put the solutions that were necessary in place, I recognized that that was almost as tough of a challenge as it would be to try to produce fish without the fish. The difference is one is more of a technical challenge. The other is very economically difficult. And I think it, it seemed to me like the upside, if we could make something like this work, if we could grow fish without the fish, would be incredible. I mean, the opportunity is not just the short term, let's replace unsustainable fisheries, but in the long term could enable localized food production. Uh, and, and so, and, and even you know, production of food for space and beyond and whatever humanity might do in the next century. And I think that's kind of boundless upside is incredibly exciting. Um, and, but we re realized we needed to start with the fundamental challenge, which is the cost structure of, of cell-based products. And so we started by actually looking at the growth media itself and trying to develop a sense of whether we could make a, a much lower cost growth media or growth supplement. And that was kind of the genesis of Umami Meats is we said, we, let's put the hardest problem first, because if we can't solve this problem, it's going to come up again later. And we might paint ourselves into a really tough position later if we still have to come back to this problem. So we started working on this uh, actually in February of 2020. Um, and had some challenges with COVID, as I'm sure many other companies have, with with lockdowns and with other with other uh, you know difficulties, especially as a company that needs physical access to laboratory space. But I think we're able to, to sort of work through that quite well, uh, as much as we were able to, and and within about seven months had the first successful prototype of this growth serum, and we were able to show that we could get multiple types of fish cells to grow on it without any animal products contained at all. Um, and that was a major sort of proof point for us because that meant that our cost structure suddenly looked totally different than it did if we had to use the traditional fetal bovine serum. Um, and we're talking, you know, two orders of magnitude cost reduction from that. So that was a major first step. And, and from there, we've now started developing cell lines from a couple of species, uh, including Japanese eel, yellowfin tuna, red snapper, and a grouper. And our focus has been, we sort of, we sort of started with a blank page and looked at 
what species are considered unsustainable today and why? How much are they consumed? What does the demand look like? Is it growing? Um, is it, is it dropping off? Is, is the messaging that these are unsustainable working or is it not, right? And then trying to understand, are they farmed today? Does it look like that's gonna happen in the near future? And putting those pieces together, try to find the top species that would be kind of iconic enough to help build a movement around, but then also couldn't be farmed, were really unsustainable and currently threatened or endangered, um, and where demand was growing. And we thought that was a really good combination because essentially consumers would soon not be able to get these fish by traditional means. And so it would make the transition much easier, we thought, into the market. Um, and that's kind of the reason we started working on these species now. And our, our goal is to actually produce first, you know, structured or semi-structured prototypes of these uh, toward about Q3 next year and really prove that we've actually been able to, to make them as first products. So can you tell us a bit more about the, the, the process and the, the production process? Uh, I mean, as I, I hear you, uh, you now it's like uh, after two seven months work on like the, the, the seven based uh, solution to start to uh, to build the, the different set. I mean, a lot of people are not really familiar about the, the process. Yeah. So if you could walk us through um, to, to you know, explain us, how do you uh, get the, the first uh, the first piece of, of meat, how does, does it look like and, and in terms of uh, flavor and tex texture? Did you uh, already, uh, I mean, I guess you tested out yourself, uh, but did you do like a, a larger uh, scale uh, testing and to get feedback? How, how, how was those feedback as well? Yeah, so in terms of the process uh, for production, I mean, basically you start with a fish, right? And ideally, uh, the fish that's, that's still uh, alive and you take a biopsy from it, basically uh, a gram of tissue or less. And then we go through a process to isolate uh, muscle stem cells from the tissue. And then we basically characterize those cells and make sure they're what we think they are. And then the goal is actually to turn those cells into what's known as spontaneously immortalized, which basically means you grow them in a cultured environment in, in uh, cell culture dishes to the point where you can actually get them to continue to grow forever. Because typically cells in an animal will grow for a certain amount of time and then will stop growing and senesce. And when that happens to enough cells, typically it is the animal side. Um, that's kind of a natural life cycle, but the goal for production, especially if you want a maximally sustainable process is you want to be able to harvest cells once and use them for years and years, right? For production. And so, but we, we don't want to use genetic engineering to do that. So we spend time actually letting the cells evolve naturally. We find the ones that are adapting to that process well, and then we screen them and put them into our growth media screening process to grow them with our plant-derived media as opposed to something that requires animal inputs. Um, that whole process is basically the funnel to get you a cell line and a growth media that can be used for production. And then for production, you can take those two inputs, add them to a bioreactor with some salts and sugars, and then let the cells grow and grow and grow. And then you'll, you'll start with a, like a million cells and you'll come out with close to a trillion cells. So it's, it's relatively uh, fast upscaling of cells. And then you have to structure them. But this can be really interesting because you can do a number of things. You could make a fully structured fish that you could cut and make sashimi from, make real sushi. But you could also combine the fish fat cells with uh, plant material and make a hybrid kind of product. Uh, or you could take just the muscle and put it into uh, like a structure, you know, maybe like a fish cake or a fish ball where it doesn't need full structure, but it gives you more room to kind of 
uh, experiment, create foods that may be a slightly better than what you could do with a natural product initially. So it's kind of the end-to-end -end process. And, and I would say uh, we've done some in internal testing so far, uh, but really what we've found is that the fish, you, you can definitely tell the difference between species. Like it, it's actually relatively obvious, but in terms of things like mouthfeel and texture, those are definitely works in progress right now. Um, because the structuring is, is something that kind of is, is ongoing and we're trying to come up with the right way to make it flaky in some tech contexts, but then also firm enough to, to grill for unagi. These are sometimes competing uh, requirements, so. Super exciting. So uh, I guess this uh, putting the, all of those cells together in, in, into a form or shape uh, and aggregating them uh, together, it's like your next, uh, in a way, challenges. And how do you see that could scale uh, into a, a factor? You see like those factories, if you could describe, uh, you know, the, the, the producing plant uh, in five years from now, how do you see it? Would it be like production line? Would it be like uh, big facilities? Would it be like small facilities, decentralized? How do you, how do you see it? Yeah, so I think uh, the closest thing that I would say is, is you're looking at sort of a combination of a brewery and a food production line, right? So there's sort of the brewery on the front end that's growing the cells. And then on the back end, you have cells coming out and getting formed into an end product uh, using the structuring technology and, and then getting packaged and everything for sale. And there's, a, there's competing demands here, I would say. On the one hand, uh, economies of scale demand a some minimum size of facility that would be ideal to be built. But from a carbon reduction and climate perspective, localizing production can have a lot of impact in this kind of space. Uh, particularly if you're talking about manufacturing in Singapore and selling to Beijing as opposed to manufacturing right outside of Beijing, that's a much different uh, profile of emissions, right, for, for production. And so we don't yet know exactly what the right answer to that is because some of it will depend on the energy mix where we can put the production site. Some of it will depend on if we think the, the consumer demand will be clustered close enough in one city or one area to support a facility. Um, and some of it's regulatory driven. So uh, it, it's kind of competing, competing things we'll have to, to take into account and determine. But I think our goal is, is to localize production to the point that we can make food systems much more resilient to things like a, like a ship getting stuck in the Suez Canal, right? Um, or, or COVID or any other kinds of, of issues where you can't transport fish a few thousand, few thousand miles. And on flights of fresh fish to keep people fed. So let's go back to the, the initial um story of the of the company and, and i would say like more as, a, as an entrepreneur what were the, the initial challenges uh, of uh, umami meats and, and maybe if you can share how did you uh, you know if you select one or two that was the the biggest one how did you overcome uh, them and maybe not uh, looking forward what what keeps you uh, up at night so initially i think the two diff most difficult things one were was securing lab space uh, very early on uh, this is one of the things that has gotten easier in Singapore, but initially was relatively challenging if you wanted just a bench or two benches to work from. Uh, and I had actually just moved to Singapore before uh, to start Umami Meats, so I didn't have connections to everybody in the space already. So we were definitely sort of uh, just contacting everyone we knew who was working in the space, trying to talk to people within government and within other institutions, and, and trying to hunt down something and, and try to make something work. And I think 
that ended up working out really well for us. Um, and then actually like a week and a half after we found the space, we ended up going into first quarantine. So it worked out <laughs> and then we kind of had, had, had our nice payoff be, be wiped out a little bit, but I think we, we ended up making that work re relatively well because we were in the same boat as everyone else. Right. And I think that was, that was kind of a challenge we all faced together in the ecosystem. But then the second big challenge was the borders stayed, stayed closed or really tightly controlled. And Singapore doesn't really raise a lot of fish uh, domestically. Many of them are brought in, especially if you want to get more, uh, call them exotic species, but even just anything that would be wild caught for the most part. Many of them are brought in from Malaysia or from Indonesia. And so we had to really work through some contacts and try to develop some collaborations to even get fish to work on the cell lines from or to get raw materials to produce our growth serum from. And that was, it, it still is an ongoing challenge to some degree, but it's, it's now at least we have some solutions for it that are reasonably good. So, that's I mean, those were, those were definitely really challenging. And I think the way we got through them was just try everything we could think of and ask everyone we could find who could help us. Um, and anytime I met with somebody, I would bring up one of those two things I thought they could help with and try to see if they might be able to know somebody in their network who could help. And I think now the biggest things that keep me up are just figuring out how we, how we really make the most of you know, the time and the resources we have and deliver on, on product. And I think on the one hand, that means recruiting the best people and finding the best team members to help us build our vision. Um, and the other side of that is finding the right commercial partners to scale. And I think both of those things, to some degree, uh, you're sort of married to those decisions, right? Because the things you do will be tied pretty heavily to the people you have. And the way that you commercialize, the way you're seen in the world is tied very heavily to the partners you have. So in some ways, the decisions we make now will affect us for years to come. And I think those, that's, those are heavy decisions to make early on in the life cycle of a company. So can you tell us a bit more about um, the current economics of Umami Meats? I mean, we know that it's still like very early stage, but what is the, the business model? And I know that you are a big fan of innovative business models, so I'm sure you have uh, some uh, interesting uh, uh, things to share here. Uh, and in terms of margin, if you can uh, share a bit about like, you know, when you guys goes to, uh, go to production, how, how does it you know, look like? Yeah, so I would say we've, we've overcome, I think one of the biggest challenges, one of the first challenges I will say to getting to scale, which is removing some of the animal derived products that are very expensive from our supply chain. Uh, number one amongst them is bovine serum. And we've been able to develop a low cost growth media, our growth serum that we're using uh, that reduces that cost by, by a hundredfold, right? And so um, that's a pretty great start. We think we, we have another 10X in that cost reduction as we scale up and that will get us in the ballpark. It'll get us within the same order of magnitude as people expect to pay. Um, the remainder of that has to come from making sure our cell lines continue to perform because if we scale up and the cell lines don't like the environment or they start growing much slower in the bigger reactors, we then have to re-solve some problems. Um, but in terms of the, the economics of how we actually get to market, I would say, I mean, I think somewhere between it's hard to put it hard to put a number on it, but, but somewhere around half of our of our uh, cost reduction from here on out will come from scale up. Somewhere somewhere close to that, and I think a lot of that is just buying, and a large portion of it is also relative cost contribution of the assets because it's an asset heavy business, 
and we need to be producing enough volume to justify the investment in very large bioreactors, as an example, or a production line to form the fish. And the way that we think about making that viable is, is by starting in a sort of a high-end fine dining and then working our way into the mass market through partnerships. So the high-end fine dining lets us pinpoint just a couple of groups to work with where we can serve them out of a pilot plant. We can really do a great job of not just providing food to a customer, but actually working with chefs who are passionate about ocean preservation and conservation, who can help educate consumers and, and help build the message. I think it's actually equally important uh, pieces of getting a new product out. And then from there, the, the main way we get to impact is, is actually by reaching millions or billions of people, right? And so our, our focus there is actually producing fish that can be used like regular fish. So it can go into, uh, if we sell fish, it could be used and turned into a fish curry that could go into a Thai market, or it could go into um, a fish ball that could go into laksa, which is a very uh, near and dear to many people's heart here in Singapore, for example. But we, we, would, we don't want to necessarily control exactly what the end product looks like, because we think if we have to develop the thousands of ways people eat fish, it's going to take us too long to do that. So we want to be the enabler for others to say, okay, let's get on the cell culture train. Let's put products out and umami meats can help us with the fish. And do you think that uh, the, this fish production, I mean, you mentioned like the economy of scale that you will realize, like, I mean, is your goal to reach like something cheaper than uh, wild uh, fish or farm-raised fish? Or do you think that you're going to, it's going to take you a long time to arrive similar uh, pricing and then eventually with this, uh, I don't know, do you have any projection? Do you need like dozens of, uh, of plants uh, all around the world? Or how does it look like on that uh, specific point? I think there will definitely be, and in our vision, we, we want to have many plants around the world. I don't know exactly what that number is, but I think, again, localization is a core part of resiliency and, and, and climate um, mitigation when it comes to food production. And I would say on the other side, uh, the goal is to have the single facility be big enough that the economics work within that facility, right? So exactly what that looks like today, we don't have an exact number, but we have some models internally that we're working on. Um, that give us kind of a ballpark. But I would say the way that we are thinking about this model is achieving price parity to within 10%, let's say plus or minus 10% of what consumers are paying today is the main driver. Because if we can get to that price point, then it's not a big leap to ask people to pay a small premium on their subsidized fish today that includes things like you know uh, fuel subsidies for the wild caught and other kind of subsidies on the farm side. We, we think that we can be quite competitive at that. And that, we think that that will come actually at the first full-scale commercial plant that will be able to hit that kind of price point. Um, I think we'll actually be able to undercut the price of many types of fish. Probably not the commodity farmed initially because that's just done at such scale and such density that um, you know they, they really get prices that don't account for all the externalities of that kind of production system, right? But I think especially if you account for some of those externalities, we'll be quite competitive with those species. And we hope that governments will help consumers understand what they're trading off if they're buying the cheapest possible fish and what is going unaccounted for in that price. Um, you know, it's not just carbon emissions, right? It's also waste effluent going into rivers and causing ecosystem damage. It's a, it's a bunch of different things that I think we need to find a way to account for so that consumers are, are actually comparing price prices equally um, mm -hmm. and, it's, and sort of not being hidden from them, right? In terms of current systems versus future, future technology.
No, definitely. I think that's a good segue for my uh, next question in terms of uh, impact. Uh, if you can tell us a bit more about like, what is the projected impact of uh, Umami Meats? Uh, I mean, where do you see that you guys will have the biggest impact? Is it uh, in terms of uh, ocean and, and species uh, protection, CO2 removal, or maybe like this, uh, I was mentioning to you, the social impact uh, by providing access to, uh, you know, food to millions uh, that are currently lacking of, uh, of food today. Uh, and maybe if you can also like, if you really like digged uh, already a bit into that, how do you eventually like calculate that and see that where uh, you can have this impact? Yeah, so we, we think really the biggest impacts in the earlier stages of our scale up will be in helping to feed lots of people more sustainably and to extinction of many species in the ocean. Um, and, and preserves those ecosystems. And we think those two things are, are pretty intimately intertwined because whether you're farming the fish or whether you're catching them out of the ocean, um, the way that we produce seafood today causes a lot of damage to ecosystems and creates, creates problems even, even when it's helping solve others, right? And so I think for us, those are the two biggest things we can do initially. And if we can feed people more sustainably and we can, we can show that there's a true option and really help build momentum so that the major investors in the world decide, let's put up a lot of these plants to help feed the demand that's going to grow by 80%, just you know globally, but most of that's going to be here in Asia Pacific. So there's no real way for us to meet that demand without new production methods, uh, at least not if we want to have an earth that's recognizable at the end of that. So I think that's sort of first and foremost in our minds because it's coming whether we, whether we, develop new tech or not. So we want to focus there. But I think if we are successful in doing that sort of scale up, we have the ability to really also dramatically change the climate impact of seafood. Because especially on the premium side of the market, a lot of seafood is shipped live, live fish, one kg to fish to five kg of water around the world on airplanes, right? And that's just almost extravagant when you think about the emissions that come with getting a live flatfish somewhere at a restaurant or uh, something like that. And so the ability to localize the production will help really cut down on some of that. And the exact reduction in CO2, I, I think we don't have an exact number today, but we have the ability to run all of our production on 100% renewable power, which I think will be a major advantage that is, is almost impossible to achieve with a traditional system. Um, and and we, we think that the, the carbon emissions will come, but we are we need to prove that to ourselves before we really want to prove it to others. Yeah. So in terms of uh, competition, uh, if you can give us a little bit more uh, you know, detail about the competition in the EU, US and, and Asia, how is this uh, landscape evolving? I mean, you, you mentioned that it's like small uh, entities uh, tackling the, the problem. Uh, how, is the, how is the market? Are you like in a, in a bull market or are you, <laughs> are you still like, uh, <laughs> I would say, swimming in a large ocean and uh, you, you have time to see uh, things coming? I think, I think even the whole cultivated ecosystem as a whole is swimming in a large ocean in a way. I mean, if you look at uh, food is one of the biggest markets there is globally, if you want to put it in those kind of contexts. And there's still maybe fewer than 100 companies working on cultivated as a whole, you know, to serve trillions of dollars of worth of meat demand. I mean, it's if any other market, you would look at that and say it's not crowded at all. Uh, every one of these companies could be $100 billion and still have plenty of space left in the market. And I think that's especially true in seafood. If you look at the consumption patterns of seafood and the number of species we eat, there's probably a few, maybe maybe a half dozen or, or seven or eight companies total um, 
working on on fish. And I think that sort of in the US, in Europe, and, and there's a couple in Asia, but I think we need more. I think we, we need more because seafood is eaten differently. Different species are eaten on different continents. And that's a lot of work for a handful of companies to take on. In a short period of time, we have to, to do it. Um, and the way that we see it, our biggest challenge is actually getting products to market, getting them to scale. And I actually think working with other companies to help build the markets, build consumer awareness, get regulators on board is really where our challenges lie. Is, is and, and these companies can help one another do that. I, I think our com competition is the fish that's getting caught out of the ocean today, where somebody's seeing a price they don't actually they don't actually realize is subsidized, right? By a fuel subsidy or by trash fish, uh, which seems like a very shameful way to talk about any kind of animal that we're pulling into the food system. Uh, I mean, these are all things that we think there's a lot of effort that needs to go into helping re revamp our food system. Uh, and all of our competitors have a role to play along that with us. Are they using the same technology that uh, yours or there's like different ways to do it? Uh, what's the- There are variations. What's the on this? Yeah. Yeah, so, so there are some companies that are working with um, like stem cells, for example. There's some companies that are working just on fats. Um, this is more, more accurate in the, uh, the land-based animal space, but I know of a couple of companies currently that are just getting started that are try starting to specialize in that way, which I think will be excellent because it will allow for a more diverse system once they come, come about. Um, but in terms of production technologies, I think there will be some areas where things converge to sort of the best solution that anyone finds. And then for structuring, different approaches from different companies. Okay. Uh, in terms of, um, I would say, uh, regarding the, 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 those competitors, is there any like already market ready uh, solution uh, that today I, would, uh, I could buy in Europe or in the US or is it still, uh, uh, you know, about to be launched or how far we into, into that process to see uh, uh, this kind of fish and maybe yours, how, how long is it going to take to, uh, to get uh, the first one uh, in, in my fine dining place? <laughs> yeah. So I think as a whole for cultivated seafood, we're definitely a little bit behind where cultivated meat is in terms of market readiness. But I know that a couple of companies are working with regulators already trying to bring their products to market, likely sometime early next year, early to mid next year. Um, But the scale that they're going to come to market is still, I think, the main question, right? Is it going to be like some of these uh, pilot restaurants you see in Israel or like the fine, the tasting, the way to eat just is doing it here in Singapore. I think you, you may see some of these initially. And then as capacity increases, maybe you'll see true market launches uh, that are not sort of highly exclusive events. And I think that's, that's really what I'm excited for is those first real mass kind of not true mass market, but at least first fully market exposed kind of launches, right? Where people can come in and just try it and get a feel for whether they're, they're in the future or not, right? And I think that's going to be a really exciting time. I think we're probably about a, uh, two years away from that right now. Um, and our, our target is to get to that sort of production stage in about two years, give or take. Uh, and, and some of that will depend on regulators, but we hope that will be a mostly solved challenge by the time uh, by some of the pioneers who are, who are driving that forward now. So what's next for uh, Umami Meat for the next uh, six to 12 months? Uh, what keeps you uh, busy right now? 
uh, many different things, but I would say that, that the biggest things that we're focused on right now are getting these structured prototypes ready for our demonstration and uh, really working on enhancing the system at the lab scale where it is now to, to make it as efficient as possible for us to scale it up. Uh, I think there's a lot of work we can do at a scaled down model that will allow us to be much more efficient in getting to that large scale we need to hit. Um, and hopefully to do that in a way that's more efficient than how it's been done before um, by, by similar industries. So. so what's your personal opinion uh, of the climate crisis? Uh, I mean, what would you say to, to, to people who are afraid of hearing all of those terrible news, uh, you know, and already visible consequences of, of climate change? As I was telling you, are we doomed? Uh, or what do you want to, to tell them? Yeah. Well, I think there's, there's no point in sugarcoating it and saying that, you know, we're not in a dire situation. We are. And I think recognizing that and, and saying this is it's a real problem we need to tackle is essential. Um, but I don't, I don't think that we're doomed because we have managed incredible feats of steering a massive ship in the right direction in a very short period of time when it comes to things like uh, CFC emissions with, the, with the, um, the ozone layer. We were able to turn that around really quickly, actually on a human time scale. I mean, in, in a matter of less than a decade, we, we sort of made very visible progress on a similarly massive problem. Uh, now I will say the fact that all of, our, all of our energy in the world comes from a certain type of, of fuels that are causing a challenge for us today is, makes this a bit ch more challenging, but I think it only will get solved if we step forward and try to find solutions. I don't think we can expect some magic to come out of the ether and, uh, you know, solve this for us. And I think anybody who is worried about it um, should, should figure out if they have something in mind where they can go develop, a, I don't know, a greener fuel system or better food, or I think, I think all of these problems independently will need their own solutions. So. Yeah, or joining, uh, joining a company or joining a company like, like yours. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Working on the one, uh, you know, uh, part of the, of the equation and of the problem, that's for sure. So how can the, the, the community of, uh, of listeners, investors, founders uh, from around the world are listening to the, to the show can help you today? I think, uh, I mean, for us right now, you can, you can definitely keep up to date with us on LinkedIn, um, follow, follow us on our, our website um, for, for updates. And uh, I mean, spread the message, I think, about novel foods. And, and when you meet people who are, who are really skeptical, I think embrace the skepticism and understand why they're concerned. And then think about, you know, what that means for how we get from where we are today to a future where we have sustainable food production. Because I think have the kinds of questions where they start to think about the assumptions they make about the world is really important and actually will help us uh, if, if people are primed for the kind of conversations we need to have. It's always step one. So any question that I did not ask you that I, uh, I should have for this uh, first part of the interview? I don't think so. I think we covered uh, all, the big, all the big points. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, uh, Mia, for your time, uh, for all of those uh, incredible uh, insights uh, on the on the industry. I'm su super excited to see uh, so many, uh, you know, brilliant people like uh, like you uh, tackling this uh, this massive uh, massive problem and uh, really bringing, uh, you know, like this this extra uh, energy, focus, and time uh, to you know, way fight climate change and and build a, a better planet and more sustainable uh, sustainable world. So thank you so much. Thanks, thanks very much for your time as well. It was a pleasure.
Hi, it's Guillaume again. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. As I said, do not hesitate to share an episode with a friend. Also, if you value the work we do for the climate tech ecosystem, here is how you can contribute to it. Today, I'm asking for your support and a donation or sponsorship to make the work of our self-funded team more viable. Even a small contribution means a lot to us. In any case, I will invite you to subscribe to our channels and visit our website startupdayscamp.org to discover more episodes like this one and get your membership to access all our members' exclusive content. So remember, all of this is possible because of your support and donation. And we want you to be part of this collective movement against climate change. Let's keep in touch and I hope you will enjoy our next show with us.